RPC Radio. Spoken Giants, international financial institutions tackling the cancer of corruption. Brought to you by RPC. In this unique series, we speak with representatives of nine international financial institutions whose activities span the globe. Unspoken Giants focuses on the multifaceted approach to tackling fraud and corruption globally, while achieving the ambitions of these titans of finance to alleviate poverty, strengthen economy and eliminate disease. Designed to give you an insight into the mind of international financial institutions and multilateral development banks, we speak to representatives of these institutions to discuss how funding recipients can avoid pitfalls, engage with institutions and handle allegations of sanctionable or prohibited practices. episode we're discussing the Global Fund and we have with us Patricia Diaz-Dennis, the Global Fund Sanctions Panel Chair and Philip DeWild, the Senior Legal Counsel. Also joining us on the panel, as with other episodes, we have Robert Waterson. Robert is a partner at RBC where he specialises in regulatory matters and he has seen both sides of the regulatory fence, having previously acted for government and now assisting corporates and individuals with sticky regulatory situations. Patricia, Philippe, Robert, welcome to the podcast and thank you so much for joining me today to explain more about the Global Fund to our listeners. So Philippe, your career has always been on the legal side, first in private practice and then moving to the Global Fund in a legal counsel role. How does this previous private practice experience help you to view the challenges that you face in your role at the Fund? Thank you so much, Alice, for this question. My private practice role, it is very much of a client-lawyer relationship. And at the Global Fund, we're really more thinking about supporting the mission of the Global Fund. So there we are more looking at how can we support the organization in achieving its mission in the elimination of HIV, AIDS, tuberculosis and malaria. And Patricia, you've had an absolutely fascinating career, including stints in US politics and in the first sanctions board at the World Bank. How has this helped you to shape the perspective that you bring to the Global Fund? I'd like to correct a perception. Uh, I've not been active in politics. I was a practicing labor lawyer and appointed to the National Labor Relations Board, which is a quasi-judicial role. But I was not at all active in politics. A lot of people get to D.C. because they are active. That was not my route. They actually wanted somebody who knew and had practiced labor law in the Reagan administration. And I was appointed to a Democratic seat because our independent agencies, they're independent of the administration, are comprised of a majority of the president's party and then a minority of the other. And I was one of the others. Also, the Federal Communications Commission, which sets our national telecommunications and communications law. And that also was an independent agency. Agency. And then the Assistant Secretary of State for Human Rights was part of the State Department. But again, that was not because of a political role that I had played at all. I simply substantively knew something about the role I was asked to assume. So I just want to clarify that because independent agencies are a very unique and important facet of the way that our government works. 
Is that something that you carried across into how you approach things at the Global Fund? I think the independence issue and being able to see things from a perspective that isn't carrying a particular kind of water, <laughs> it isn't slanted in a way that you're there to achieve an agenda. As Philip said, the, the agenda really is to further the mission of the Global Fund. Having been a lawyer and representing clients, I view it to some extent in that capacity, although I wouldn't have taken on this role, it's a non-paying role, but for the fact that the mission itself is so critical and we're not going to achieve the ultimate aim of the World Bank or the Global Fund for that matter, which is to lift people so that they don't get ill, so that they can find their way out of poverty. So the mission spoke to me And when I was asked to take on this role as chair of the sanctions panel, as one of the three independent members, I jumped at the chance because it really is so critical, furthering the goals of the Global Fund as well as other entities that are engaged in this fight (laughs) against global corruption and fraud. Turning to you, Philippe, we've talked a bit about the mission of the Global Fund and you mentioned HIV, tuberculosis and malaria. What is it that the Global Fund does to achieve these laudable aims of elimination of disease and who are its stakeholders? The Global Fund provides grants to public, private and non-governmental programs respecting country-level implementation processes in support of technically sound and cost-effective interventions. This does for the prevention, treatment, care in support of the infected and directly affected. So the sort of activities that the Global Fund supports could be, for example, increased access to health services, provision of critical health products, including drugs, training of personnel, community health workers, behavior change and outreach, and community-based programs. In achieving its goal, the Global Fund staff will work with governments, communities and civil society, technical agency, the private sector, and people affected by the diseases. During this podcast series, we're also exploring how each of these international financial institutions address ethical challenges and what has been termed the cancer of corruption. So, for the Global Fund, what is the framework in which this particular fight is addressed? Philippe? Yeah, the Global Fund has a broad ethics and integrity framework. It's uh, supported by three different policies. We have the policy on ethics and conflicts of interest. We have the whistleblowing policy and the policy to combat fraud and corruptions. These policies, they are underpinned by codes of conduct for various stakeholders, such as governance officials, Global Fund employees, CCM members, recipients of Global Fund financing, and also suppliers to the program supported by the Global Fund. We also have a dedicated board committee, that is the Ethics and Governance Committee, which oversees ethics-related matters. And since 2016, the Global Fund has also an ethics officer in place. This ethics officer has a dual reporting line to the board and our executive director. And the roles of the ethics officers are to independently advise, support, monitor, and report on ethics and integrity matters. And to work with stakeholders to embed ethics and integrity into their processes, including through communications and training. And Philippe, 
what type of cases would this particular office receive? Cases received by the ethics office generally include requests for advice and reports or allegations of misconduct from stakeholders, including governance officials, staff and implementers. So that's the ethics office. Philippe, you also mentioned earlier that you have an investigative function. How does that work? We have the Office of the Inspector General, or OIG, as we refer to it, that safeguards the assets, investments, reputation and sustainability of the global fund by ensuring that it takes the right action to defeat AIDS, tuberculosis and malaria. So it will work through audits, investigations and consultancy work. And OIG promotes them good practice, reduces risks and reports fully and transparently on abuse. Our OIG was established in 2005, and it is an independent but integral part of the Global Fund. It's accountable to our board through its audit and finance committee and serves the interests of all Global Fund stakeholders. Its work conforms to the international standards for professional practice. Philippe, how does your particular role fit within this framework? At the Global Fund, I'm a senior legal counsel providing specialized legal support to various country teams across all regional departments of the grant management division of the organization. And these teams are all internal and based in Geneva, as we don't have specific in-country presence. So I support these teams in their day-to-day grant management activities, and I'm specifically involved in the review of all sorts of legal documents related to grant making and implementation. But I also provide guidance on institutional and cross-cutting matters to other departments of the organization to enhance the corporate and operational effectiveness of the global fund. So my portfolio can typically include cases of supplier misconduct that have been referred to the Global Fund Sanctions Panel. It can include the review of private sector contribution agreements, but also matters related to privileges and immunities of the Global Fund or governance matters. come on to the sanctions panel in a second, but those of you who are alert listeners might be thinking that the Global Fund is not the usual multilateral development bank fair that appears on this podcast series. So it was considered important to have the Global Fund's perspective on this series. Robert, why was that? Alice, as you say, the Global Fund isn't a multilateral development bank. And so far in this series, that's who we've been talking to. So why has it been included? It's a fund, it's an international institution, but it provides, in my view, a particular insight into another type of international organisation, which itself has its own sanctions and debarment function. We'll talk more about the details later, but I think at high level for the Global Fund, like the MDVs we've spoken to, the importance of these functions has really come to the fore in recent years. Philippe's already given us a little bit of chronology as to how these particular offices within the Global Fund have developed over the last decade or so. But again, like the MDBs, this fight against corruption is about advancing the aims of the particular institution. And that's something which is just as valid for the Global Fund, uh, for other international organisations which are similar to it, and to the multilateral development banks we've already spoken to. If I might add, one of the 
really important aspects of this particular focus for the Global Fund is it can't do its job if the mosquito nets to combat malaria manufactured by someone who says they're going to be X and Y and meet these requirements, and in fact, they do not. It's health and safety. So these are pretty serious reasons, I think, just the health and safety involved of providing what you say you're going to by people who tell you they can do these things. And if they can't, or they are engaging in corrupt practices with their government, it lessens the ability of the fund to meet its objectives. So to me, that's really a critical aspect here. It's true of the World Bank as well and the other international organizations to which you've spoken or will speak. But I think this one is really critical because you're talking about health here and safety. The banks loan, I know, to hospitals and or you know make loans to build hospitals and that sort of thing. But this is on the ground mosquito nets <laughs> and HIV medicines. So I think it's really the component here takes on an added edge because you can't have somebody providing things that don't work to further the aims of the organization. Patricia, this is probably a good time for us to move on to your role as the Global Fund Sanctions Panel Chair. So how does that fit within the sanctions panel and also within the framework for the Global Fund that Philippe has just set out? This particular function is not a judicial function. I was a member of the first sanctions board at the World Bank, and there it was a judicial function because we reviewed cases coming from what they call INT, which was the bank's investigative arm, de novo. We would review them. At the sanctions panel, we are part of the administrative ultimate decision maker about what is the appropriate sanction. What we have done, and it's to short circuit some of the lengthy time between the commission of the offense and the action taken to cure the impact of that offense, which is quite extensive, very thorough investigation. We take the facts as submitted in that OIG report, Office of Inspector General report, as the facts. And it does two things. It makes it a different kind of review because what we're looking for is what remedy can be tailored to cure and meet the concerns of the mission as well as ensure that the person who engaged in the bad conduct is precluded from repeating it or will go on and be remedied. So we are able to fashion, I think, rather innovative solutions, but we start from the premise that the Office of Inspector General report is the facts. We can't dispute. We do have a way in which the respondent can come in and appeal to us and say they didn't want to hear this and these are really important facts. You know, something extraordinary like that. But generally, almost all the cases we've had involve us accepting as the facts of the case what is in the Inspector General's report. So very different process from, say, the World Bank, with which I was familiar. I, I served on it from the very beginning. I was on it from 2007 to 2013 as a member of the World Bank Sanctions Board. And so a very different approach. It was much more legalistic as a result because we did review facts de novo from the very beginning and didn't accept as a given the facts that the INT report gave us. We do accept as a given the facts in the OIG report. So it's a very different approach 
much less legalistic. And frankly, the boundaries are not the same. You can come up with creative solutions to further the mission at the same time while ensuring that you don't have a bad actor involved. Can't quite do that at the World Bank. You have a much more formalistic rule approach than we do at the Global Fund. How is the sanctions panel comprised? And what is the volume of cases that it has seen so far? Good question. (laughs) 80 is what I recall. Is that right? 80 cases? Yeah. And we're comprised of three external members. And so I am accompanied by two other folks who have extensive experience in this kind of endeavor at other bank institutions. And then we have three internal members who are quite helpful because they understand the global fund. Philip, there are functional roles that are included, and you might want to talk about those. Yes. So our internal members, they are the head of the grant management division, our chief procurement officer and our chief financial officer. Those are the internal members of the sanctions panel. And then we have our independent external members. And actually, this uh, composition really allows us to have expert voices that have expert experience in anti-corruption and have independent view, and to combine this with a view of our internal uh, members that really know how the global fund works. Patricia, Philippe, thank you. You've both talked there about the unique way in which the Global Fund Sanctions Panel works. And Patricia, you mentioned that it's a very different process from that of the World Bank. So what is the process from a respondent company's point of view and how would they end up there? Patricia? Obviously, you have to observe due process. So once the OIG report is done and you hope that the actors who Inspector General is investigating will cooperate, it's in their interest to cooperate because you take that in as a mitigation factor, of course, you know, whether they cooperate or not. And when the final report is done, if there is newly discovered evidence of some sort, or they just simply want to appeal, for lack of a better term, it's not a formal appeal, but if they want to bring something to the attention of the sanctions panel, they have a right to do so. And we did have a major case where lots of lawyers got involved too. The respondents had brought lawyers into the process. It's more rare at the Global Fund than at the World Bank. I mean, I saw a lot more lawyers there than I did. And I love lawyers, you know, I am one. So this is not in any way a negative, but it's much less formal is the word I'd like to use. We want to ensure that people had their time before the ultimate decision is made in the sense that, again, we've got a different process. Our decision is just a recommendation to the executive director to impose this kind of remedy. And so at the World Bank, the decision of the sanctions board was the final decision. I think the global fund will look at, are there ways to improve the current process? And I think there are a couple, but overall, the need for expediency, given the health and safety that's at issue really in what the global fund does, it it makes it a process that is, again, tailored to achieving the ends of the global fund's mandate. 
Patricia, you mentioned there about some of the recommendations that you can make. What is the range of recommendations available to you? It's a wide range. And actually, what I love about it is that we can still be creative. There's sometimes that we say, okay, we need these nets, but let's talk about what else can this entity do to demonstrate they get it, that they can engage in corrupt practices. Ah, they're going to have a monitor who will advise them on developing and then check and make sure that they do develop good compliance process processes internally that's for a bit of a larger company, or they're going to supply nets free that have been certified to accomplish the ends they're supposed to. I mean, we're able to come up with creative solutions to accomplish the mission at the same time, ensuring that the bad actor won't act in a sanctionable way again. But we can do everything from debarment, and we have debarred, which means you can't do business with us. And Philip, I haven't gone back. Have we ever done any permanent debarments? We have done indeed permanent debarments, yes. We can do debarment, temporary suspension. We can suspend for a time certain. We can require them to contribute to a fund. We've done that once where we asked them, offending parties, to support an integrity group of folks coming together and pledging to not engage in fraud or corruption and having a monitor. It's just a very unique, I think, less formulaic approach to ensuring that the fraud and corruption is not only remedied, but that the mission is furthered and not harmed in formulating the remedy. And how is that implemented in terms of the countries in which you are working? Once we make the recommendation to the executive director, the decision goes out to the teams in the country. Exactly, Patricia. We try to be as inclusive as possible. So try to really keep all our stakeholders and the partners in countries informed. So from the moment we have a decision on a sanction, we will communicate this to our principal recipients, so the recipients of our grants. Of course, we will also communicate it to the affected suppliers, but also to our country coordinating mechanism in country. And that is a group of people from the government from the private sector that really are providing the oversight of global funds or supported programs in the country. So we will inform them so that everybody in the country is aware of these sanctions, can follow these sanctions up and can also help support with implementation of these sanctions. We have discussed whether we should do something at the Global Fund like we did at the World Bank, which is let the other international banks know what we've done. Of course, they publish decisions at the sanctions board, which I think is a great way to go. It sort of acts as a, a way to inform them, that, hey, we take engaging in fraud and corruption extremely seriously at the World Bank. And if you engage in it, you're going to meet with some pretty severe sanctions. So what we've talked about is whether we should let other fund-granting organizations know who the bad actors are. Right now, the process is confidential. At some point, there will be a discussion with the appropriate ethics committee members, et cetera. Part of the issue, too, is I think that there is change in the composition of the people of the fund. And so it doesn't have quite the same approach in terms of somebody with a lot of knowledge and a lot of history, seeing how things actually work, and then deciding what changes would be necessary to make them work better. I think the Global Fund definitely wants to do that, but it's been difficult with the change. They change the executive director. How often, Philip? It's every four years, but it can be, of course, there can be a term of eight years as well. Patricia, does that lead to a degree of institutional change as well with the changing of the tone at the top? 
Right. And I wasn't meant to be here as long as I've been. <laughs> but the general counsel's office decided that we need some stability here and somebody who's been through this so that we can improve on the process. And to their credit at Global Fund, they have asked, you know, what recommendations would you make? I've submitted some that I think would make it an even more effective process to root out fraud and corruption. Also, endeavoring not to load it up with bureaucratic approaches and overly legalistic approaches, because at the end of the day, those take time and money, neither of which you want to exaggerate when you're trying to cure AIDS, malaria, and tuberculosis. how companies can respond and how this process differs both from the World Bank's procedures and also from what companies might be expecting from national investigations. From where you sit, how does the framework that Patricia and Philippe have explained operate? I think looking at it from the side of the respondents to investigations and processes of this type, there needs to be an understanding of precisely what the process is and how it's supposed to operate. I think the description which has been provided leads to the conclusion that it's a very dynamic process. It's not consistent with the normal litigation process, for instance, civil law, criminal. It's something else. It's something which is directed to a particular end, and that, in my experience, usually requires a little bit of education on the part of the organisation which is responding to the investigation of this nature. The temptation is naturally to resist or withhold and hope for the best, and that is almost always the worst possible approach, I think one of the useful things to bear in mind, particularly from the point of view of the respondent organisation, is what Patricia has described in terms of the large and varied nature of the different options open to the sanctions panel. So you were talking about everything from permanent debarment, which is on any view the worst case scenario, right through to a reprimand and very creative arrangement of potential options in between. Potentially, and this is the really interesting bit for a practitioner, options which the respondent organisation itself could be involved in shaping. If there's an acknowledgement that there's been a problem with internal staff, there's been a problem with a system, control or whatever it is, it makes sense that the respondent organisation should seek to work out how best this can be resolved. It is, after all, their organisation. I think what has been made very clear is that primacy is given to the objects of the organisation the Global Fund. That's the primary motivation between the entire anti-corruption framework and, of course, the entire reason why the fund exists itself. And so, if you look at an investigation through that framework and particular prism, then that informs the way in which an organisation should respond. That would normally mean cooperation. It would mean a degree of openness, which may be uncomfortable, It would require a period of self-investigation and self-reflection in terms of trying to assess whether there has been anything in the allegations which have been made and offering them and the organisation an opportunity to make responses and attempt to remedy any problems that may exist. I'm sure Philippe and Patricia will have their own views on this, but it strikes me that in particular for an organisation like the Global Fund, the types of stakeholders who might end up becoming respondents are in many and varied different parts of the world, different situations in backgrounds, cultural backgrounds and other factors, areas where norms might be very different to what would be acceptable on the international level. And so there's a degree of coming along for the journey, I think, 
in the context of any investigation and really attempting to demonstrate to the fund that they have identified a particular problem, if it exists, and that they have worked to remedy it to everybody's satisfaction. Moving to you, Philippe, how does the OIG undertake and conduct investigations? Thank you, Alice. So when an investigation identifies prohibited practices, in practice, the OIG goes into country, talks to stakeholders, uh, but it's such a wide range of activities that the OIG can do. They can range from audits to in-country reviews to assurance validation, inspection, investigation, consulting and other services. But what we expect from the respondents is that they fully cooperate with the OIG that conducts the investigation really to allow access to staff of the OIG and to cooperate in the inspection of relevant accounts, records and documents that are relating, for example, in the case of supplier misconduct that are relating to the bidding for a procurement contract and for performance of a global fund finance contracts. So what we really expect from our recipients in country is that from the moment they become aware of the fact that any of its representatives or the beneficiary of a contract has engaged in supplier misconduct or in corrupt, fraudulent, collusive practices, then we really expect from this recipient that it takes appropriate action and so to reach out to the Global Fund and to the OIG. Alice, it's absolutely true because we did have, in some matters, folks who came and said, look, we took care of this. We didn't realize this particular person was doing X or Y, and he's no longer or she's no longer employed by us, and we've taken steps to make sure that everybody knows that that was not sanctioned by the company, et cetera, et cetera. Ultimately, what you want is to cure the issue and ensure that the manufacturing gets done or whatever it is that they're supplying and the medicine is made Because, again, we don't want to harm the ultimate aims, we meaning the sanctions panel, the ultimate aims of the the fund itself. I may add to that also. In many times, an investigation starts with issuing a letter of findings in the country where we will set out the details of the case and where also the recipients or the stakeholders involved they have the opportunity to respond to this letter of findings. And there will be also an investigation in country. So the OIG will go into country to do an investigation. And at the different stages of the investigation, with the recipients and the stakeholders. It will share the draft report and always providing opportunities for the stakeholders to respond to accusations of the OIG or to the findings of the report. So we have a whole stakeholder engagement process with several steps, about eight different steps. And there always we will have the possibility for the recipient to provide input, but also for our country coordinating mechanism to be aware and to follow the investigation. We look very closely at whether there's been cooperation with the OIG and a fulsome openness about the facts of whatever the particular issue is. So I think from the very first notice that is given in country, 
by the inspector general's people to setting up interviews all the way down. I think the respondents know that if they don't cooperate, there's going to be a, a very particularized set of facts that will go before the fund sanctions panel. And if they believe they have a, a reason for the misconduct or they didn't know about, it is in their interest to cooperate. So we really do believe at the Global Fund in due process. I must tell you, in reading through very lengthy, very detailed OIG reports before any case that we've decided, it is amazing to me how thoroughly they are investigated. We've talked a lot over the course of this podcast series about fighting the cancer of corruption and the efforts by international financial institutions to tackle corruption and fund flows. But are we actually making a difference? Why does it matter, Patricia? It matters because the ultimate aim is to reduce poverty around the world. If you have poverty without a capable and accountable state or judiciary or the rule of law. There's certain requirements to ensure that folks have an opportunity to lift themselves up out of poverty, and it creates opportunities and provides better services and development outcomes if there isn't a culture of fraud and corruption. And the more of us, meaning the Global Fund, the bank, that engage in this, I think, yes, the difference is being made, but it is entity by entity. I was a chair of Girl Scouts in the U.S., and we'd say we're changing girls' lives one girl at a time. Well, we're changing the culture of corruption and fraud one entity at a time. We take it as a given in the U.S. and in the U.K. that independent rule of law, it's just sort of normal, but it isn't in many places. It just isn't. So I think we are making a difference. I would love to see a study to see if there's any actual changes that can be counted in some sort of time continuum, you know, from the time that the World Bank took this on or the Global Fund. I hope somebody will do it because I do think ultimately, is it something that's worth doing and continuing? Absolutely. I must admit, when I was at the World Bank, there was one case that really bothered me. It was an individual, small mom and pop kind of operation. And it just really bothered me that we were going to really uproot and upset this man's life and his family's life. And my colleagues, I was the only American, they, they said, Patricia, what's wrong with you? You're getting so soft. Because really, we can't let your emotional reaction to individual cases stop you from doing what's right. And what's right is not to steal, cheat, lie. We all agree on that. I, I would be curious to hear what Robert thinks and Philip thinks, because from my own perspective, you know, you keep climbing that hill. You're Sisyphus to some extent, but you keep going up because you will make a difference. There are companies we've changed. I know that because they came back and we know that they fixed the problem. That's just anecdotally. I don't know systematically whether that's occurred. Philippe, what are your views? Thank you, Alice. I agree with Patricia. It actually makes a big difference uh, that we continue this fight. And probably the fight will, will never be over. It will never stop. But we should continue. We can try to 
adapt. And I think it's interesting and certainly in light of the public health background, I think that it's important that we stop oversimplifying corruption in health, that we use ineffective controls, that we ignore our issues, that we work in silos. But I also think that it's important to stop thinking about corruption as an individual or moral problem. It's very much a cultural problem too. So what we need to do to change this and to enhance our fighting corruption, I think what we try to do is to unify multi-sectoral approaches to corruption and look for uh, shared problems that we can address. So we have to also look at implementation at country level, not only as to one entity or one case, as uh, Patricia just indicated, but really look at country level and and then supported by research, maybe. I think also we need to invest in capacity building in countries to make sure that these instances of corruption, that we don't look at them from one single case or one single entity, but as a bigger problem. And Robert, if I can ask you, do you think that corruption can ever be stamped out? I agree with Philip that the fight will always be there. To take the opposite example to test the idea, corruption will always require fighting, just in the same way that the rule of law will always require defending. It's always going to be something which humankind must strive for. If one looks at the statistics around instances of corruption, in inverted commas, around the world, you can get these from organisations like Transparency International, who do regular reviews, like the Corruption Perception Index, for instance. These figures seem depressingly static, like nothing is really changing and nothing is getting better. But I think what's quite clear from what Patricia and what Philippe have just said is that this is something which needs to be attacked on many different levels at the same time in order for change to be seen. So you have the cultural dimension. You have the fact that if everybody around you is doing a certain thing and behaving in a certain way, it normalises that behaviour. It becomes part of business. Quote, that's just how we do things around here, etc., etc., And so just taking that as an example, this puts into sharp relief the very significant importance of supranational organisations in the fight against corruption. Because what they do is they show a link between different countries around the world. They establish a level of behaviour and conduct which sits above the environment in which you can only see the people around you. Beyond that, not only do you get a perception which comes from all around the world, and the idea that you have to participate by a global set of standards rather than a local one in order to continue with your business, continue with your work and projects. But also, it takes the concept of the eradication of corruption out of the theoretical. In a sense, you sit there and you say, OK, we've decided that corruption is bad. You might be dealing with people who wouldn't even have thought that what they were doing was corrupt by the normal standards for the reasons we described, cultural norms, business norms, sexual norms, whatever it is. But where you have an organisation like the Global Fund, with the very specific and laudable objectives which are the reason they exist, it raises a standard by pointing out the real-world consequences of corruption. So precisely what Patricia was saying earlier, the consequences of getting it wrong, the consequences of the corrupt practice of the organisation that go on around the world, is not something that just moves a number on a balance sheet somewhere. It leads to people losing their lives. It leads to a situation where people are no longer able to free themselves from the shackles of poverty. And it then links into other aspects of the fight, the way in which corruption is fought, which is education. 
From what I can see in the analysis which have been done, one of the key ways to establish better systems for the eradication of corruption, genuinely eradicating it on a cultural and social level, is making sure people are properly educated and have access to education, and all of these things are, of course, intertwined. My view is that the work will never end. The shift will be generational, which, when you're dealing with governments and institutions where executives can change every four years, is something that's quite difficult to map. You know, if someone says they're going to eradicate corruption in four years, they're talking out of their hat. You have to look at a much longer period of time. And I'm interested in the idea that you can take it in terms of locality, in terms of a sector, a business group, and so on. All of these give opportunities for organisations such as the Global Fund to really spread the message of anti-corruption around the world. I think it's a very exciting thing for these institutions in particular to be spearheading. And I do feel like they're at the sharp end of it in terms of transmitting this message around the world. Very well said. One thing I'd like to add, I think that also aids the fight, is a law like the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which was passed here in the U.S. So I sit on some corporate boards now, which is a wonderful opportunity to change the complexion of those who run these corporations in the U.S. But one of the things, if the companies do business outside the U.S., especially Latin America, certain places where it's a cultural and social norm to engage in fraudulent practices, it makes the company itself more aware. It has to give training. Education is what you also mentioned. It gives training to the employees in country. They learn what the U.S. at least, considers to be a fraudulent or corrupt practice. And if they engage in it, they're terminated. Their employment is affected. So if more companies and more countries could do something that has that kind of ripple effect, I do think eventually it'll be less and less of a big slog uphill. It will always be a slog uphill. I agree (laughs) with my colleagues on this panel here because human nature is what it is. And There are people who will always try to short-circuit the process in various ways. But I do think the act in the U.S. is one of the mechanisms that does have tangible results in both the education and training as well as the punishment aspect. One of the points I should add following on from that is that one of the key features of having a viable and productive anti-corruption system is that you must have a very strong mandate which comes from the centre. In the case of this organisation... But in the examples that you gave from the centre of government, with one of the largest economies in the world, of course, and adequate resourcing. And this point, I think, has come up in different organisations that we've seen throughout this series, ever since the mid-90s when this very much came to the forefront. What many of them have done, including the Global Fund, is put these strategies right at the centre of their organisational structure and given them resources to work, from the very largest organisations such as the World Bank and the Global Fund, right through to some of the smaller MDBs, such as the Caribbean Development Bank, where even with more limited resources, they've seen the importance in achieving their mandates of putting the anti-corruption aspects of their work right at the heart of what they do and giving them the staff to do their work. This isn't something that they can just play a lip service to. It's something that has to actually have some teeth and some resources behind it. Yes. Compliance, now part of many companies, a compliance function in all kinds of ways, but especially in the fraud and corruption arena. Thank you very much, Patricia, Philippe and Robert. Before we go, could I ask you each for your final thoughts or takeaway messages for our listeners? Philippe, can I start with you? 
Thank you, Alex. I just want to say that we need to continue the fight against corruption. Every dollar counts to save human lives. If we can ensure that we can save the resources to deliver on our health goals and that we can strengthen the health systems by fighting corruption, then that is what we need to do. So we need to continue this fight against corruption. Thank you, Philippe. And Patricia, what are your final thoughts? It is a never-ending battle, but I think the ultimate aim of ending poverty for so much of our world, demonstrated by the recent pandemic, people without resources get affected the most radically and horribly. And so my own personal dedication here is to ultimately end the ever-growing disparity between the haves and the have-nots, because All of us will be benefited when we can eradicate or lessen the effects of poverty. It's never going to end. But fighting fraud and corruption is just one of many ways. There's lots of different mechanisms, I think, to try to alleviate poverty. But I personally, as a lawyer and somebody who's been fighting this battle for a while in various organizations, I hope young people dedicate themselves to doing it too, because it will make it a more just world. Thank you, Patricia. And Robert, the last word is with you. I think the takeaway from this, for me at least, is international organizations such as the Global Fund bringing home the importance of combating corruption for all of the good reasons that Patricia has just set out. I know they have a very particular role in spearheading the international crusade against corruption and how that is brought into sharp relief by the mandates that they promote and work by. I think from the point of view of the individual organisation that find themselves in situations where they're subject to criticism or sanction even, the important thing is to understand that when you're dealing with international organisations such as this, it's something where they have to take an entirely different approach. They approach it from the point of view of a stakeholder, which is, I think, a word which has come up throughout this podcast, and really participate in the process for the common good. And if they're not prepared to do that, then frankly, they shouldn't be applying for funding in the first place. One would hope and expect that stakeholders coming to the Global Fund, because they share their aims and ambitions and their commitment to working transparently, they should run from the top of their organisations right through to the bottom. If there are problems, they can usually be dealt with if handled properly. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for in this episode. Thank you to my panel, Robert, Philippe and Patricia, for your contributions to our discussion on the Global Fund. For more tips on how to get the best out of your relationship with an international financial institution, or for more information or assistance, please go to www.rpc.co.uk forward slash unspoken hyphen giants and follow us on Twitter at Unspoken Giants. Please do join us for the other episodes in the Unspoken Giants series, where we are joined by representatives of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, the Caribbean Development Bank, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, the European Investment Bank, the Inter-American Development Bank, a New Development Bank, the Nordic Investment Bank, and the World Bank. RPC would like to thank podcast manager Josh McDonald and our expert panel, Robert Waterson, Alex Haynes, and John McKendrick QC. Original score was composed and produced by Insider Music, who also produced this podcast series. If you liked this episode, please take a moment to rate, review and subscribe. You can listen to our other Unspoken Giants episodes wherever good podcasts are found. To hear a 
full, uninterrupted version of our podcast theme, go to Instagram at Insider Music and follow the link in bio.